Hey, welcome to another installment of The Scrum, WGBH News' political podcast. I'm Adam Riley, and right now it's looking like a very good week for Donald Trump. New polls show the Republican nominee leading Hillary Clinton in the key states of Ohio and Florida. And over at 538, the big advantage Clinton seemed to have after the Democratic convention is shrinking and shrinking fast. Maybe it was Clinton's comment about half of Trump supporters being a basket of deplorables. Or maybe it was that viral video that caught her looking like she was about to pass out, after which we learned that Clinton has pneumonia. But whatever the cause, it feels like the momentum is starting to shift to Trump. Our guest this week thinks the media might be another big reason why. WGBH contributor Dan Kennedy recently wrote a piece for our website, WGBHnews.org, that got a ton of traffic. It was titled, Five Reasons Why the Media Are Piling on Clinton and Giving Trump a Pass. Peter Kadzis and I talked with Dan about why he thinks the media is botching its coverage of the presidential race and whether Trump's candidacy could end up changing the way we think about political journalism. Take a listen. So how did this, how did this I, I, I would say that there was a few things that went into it. I was starting to see a consensus building on Twitter that a lot of people on the left had just had enough of the media. People were furious with the New York Times. In fact, I think I wrote about that the previous week. You did. And um, a headline popped into my head that was total clickbait. And I hadn't even, I didn't even know what I was going to write for the piece. But I said, this is a good clickbaity headline. I, I shot it to Peter and Jeff and said, this is what I want to do. And, uh, and that's, that's what happened. So give me some examples of stories that were not covered enough by the press when it comes to things Donald Trump may have said or done, uh, or things that we did in terms of covering Clinton that were egregious, that bolster your case that the press, uh, myself included, I suppose, are piling on Clinton and giving Trump a pass. Well, you know, I, I think that what's been happening with Trump is that there has been a lot of very negative coverage uh, of him. But I think that we reached a point where the media got sick of it. Um, I think that after the attacks on the Khan family in particular, uh, I, I think the media almost collectively sighed and said, OK, it's time to move on. So now we're moving up to Labor Day, where you have the time when people are actually starting to really tune into the presidential campaign. And the media, in large measure, has gotten sick of Trump and moved on. And what they're doing is uh, they're really covering Hillary Clinton in a very harsh way uh, and in some cases in a very unfair way that really you can go back to 25 years of Clinton scandal coverage. There's never much of a scandal. It never pans out. But we keep hearing the same things over and over again. I know you linked in your piece to examples of summaries of what you're talking about here, and, and people can read your piece online and can then go back and find those summaries. But you and I went back and forth. I remember after Anthony Weiner came back in the news, you wrote a piece for WGBHnews.org 
uh, saying that the, and I'm putting words in, in your mouth here, so correct me, I think your contention was that there was really no reason for the New York Times in particular to invoke uh, Bill Clinton's affair with Monica Lewinsky and whatever other dalliances he may have engaged in and draw a parallel between that and Huma Abedin and Anthony Weiner. And I remember arguing with you on Twitter or con- you know, suggesting on Twitter that, of course, that's a natural parallel for people to think of and for the Times to mention in their write-up because – you know, it just springs to mind automatically. So what was wrong? And we don't need to stay with that particular case, but is that an example of the egregiously unfair coverage that you're talking about? Well, I mean, I thought that was just silly. And uh, I, I, I mean, it made no sense whatsoever. I mean, you see a story about a sex scandal, so you think about a sex scandal. I mean, that's fine. We all do it. But to make it the premise of uh, an entire article in the New York Times just struck me as as ludicrous. Anthony Weiner has nothing to do with Hillary Clinton. He's gone. Uh, and, and then you had at the same time uh, Donald Trump going off and suggesting that uh, this represented some sort of a national security problem because the estranged husband of Hillary Clinton's top campaign aide um, – has a may prop- have been given access may to- have been given a- i mean it, it made no sense whatsoever that part i thought was really weird peter kansas well the <clears throat> i agree that i i agreed with dan's piece and personally when i read the piece in the new york times about wiener i i thought it was a kind of a dumb piece uh, however when, when you move away from the piece and talk about the phenomenon and, and this just a occurred to me now, and some listeners will say, of course, you dummy elitist, that would just occur to you now. It's rather remarkable that you've got, you know, the equivalent of a digital flasher married to someone who coincidentally is with Hillary Clinton. So that is a strange coincidence. Yeah, and perhaps her closest advisor, too. But I think the stranger thing, and I think this hovers over a lot of the Hillary Clinton stuff, is, you know, eight years ago when she was running against Obama, people were a little more open about talking about that, you know, it's kind of strange that the first viable woman running for president happens to be the wife of a former president. It's it's very unusual. Um, and, you, you know, we're so... Um, committed to, you know, um, gender equality and all that, I I, I think we sometimes collectively pass over. It's an unusual situation. Um, You're saying we pass over that odd and maybe awkward fact that the former first lady is now perhaps... And and by the way, let me make a comparison. I mean... Indira Gandhi has a famous last name, but she became prime minister of India, you know, on her own. Margaret Thatcher on her own. Uh, Angela Merkel on her own. Theresa May, right? Uh, Theresa May, thank you, on her own. And, you know, Hillary's public career has been tied to her husband's public career, you know, in an unusual way. It's different. It's unusual. And I, I wonder, and this is a big question, Mark, if, you know, maybe we didn't do ourselves and even herself any favors by 
and I think the fact that we sort of suppress this, it, by the way, it's too late now. Mm. The election's just weeks away. I'm just saying that it, 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 it's, it's unusual. It, it's just unusual. Although in a way, an, it is redirected in a sense, I think, and I'm thinking out loud with you here, Peter, it redirected into coverage of the Clinton Foundation and whatever uh, whatever conflicts of interest may have arisen between people who gave money to the Clinton Foundation and then sought access with Hillary Clinton, the Secretary of State. So in a way, it's not like it doesn't get addressed. It just gets addressed indirectly. Yeah, I, I mean, I don't know enough about psychology. It, it, it strikes me that there's a lot of repression going on here and that as a result, things pop up in odd odd ways. But. They they do indeed. And I think that the dynastic aspects of Hillary Clinton's candidacy are uh, make things uncomfortable for a lot of people. Uh, on the other hand, there's also a lot of misogynistic coverage of the Clinton campaign. And meanwhile, the candidate on the other side has expressed misogynistic views repeatedly. So you have that dynamic going on as well. I mean, it's interesting that you bring up the Clinton Foundation, Adam, because uh, I think that it's safe to say that one of the stories that brought things to a real boiling point uh, within the last week or two uh, was when we learned in the Washington Post, uh, which, by the way, has probably done a better job of avoiding the false balance that I, I like to criticize uh, than almost any other news organization I can think of. Uh, the Washington Post reported, and not in a very prominent place, that the Trump Foundation, which we barely hear about, had made an illegal campaign contribution to the Attorney General of Florida, Pam Bondi, Pam Bondi as she was investigating Trump University. Yep. And I think a lot of people looked at that and said, okay, the Washington Post is the only place we've seen this. They didn't display it very prominently. And meanwhile, we're hearing, you know, questions and penumbras of questions about the Clinton Foundation. I like that phrase, penumbras of questions. And, and, uh, and, and I think that that is one of the things that really sent people on the left over the edge. Was well, that the same, sorry, Peter, was that the same Washington Post piece, by the way, about the Trump Foundation that discussed him giving away basically money that wasn't his own? That no, that was, had... a, that was a huge investigative piece that was done just this past week. Thank you for setting me straight. No, and, and that, that speaks and to that's my... A, a really killer story. Oh, it's just What did a he spend on that six-foot-high picture of himself? $20,000. Well, uh, okay, so I have to ask you one more thing before I let Peter back in here. You wrote this piece for WGBH News, uh, Five Reasons Why the Media Are Piling on Clinton and Giving Trump a Pass, before the media frenzy erupted over her having that spell of unsteadiness on her feet and then yes. disclosing that she had pneumonia. Do you think that what, – what do you think of the coverage of that episode and her disclosure of her illness? How do we do covering it? Well, not very well. And by that, I would say when one of the two major nominees for president um, has, you know, a near fainting spell and then we find out she has pneumonia, this is big news and there's no reason not to treat it as big news. So I'm not criticizing the media for that. But I think that the coverage of it was amped up by a factor of 10 because of the bizarre lies that 
uh, Trump, Rudy Giuliani, and some others have been spreading about Hillary Clinton's health in recent months, from Parkinson's and multiple sclerosis to dementia. And, I mean, a lot of this stuff has actually been reported by the media, very skeptically, but nevertheless, it's been reported. So you've kind of sown the seeds so that if she legitimately does get sick, it becomes a much bigger story. And you can also understand why she said, I I can tough this out. I'll be fine in a couple days. And of course, she wasn't. You know, look, I'm going to try to blow up this entire conversation by saying that, you know, the the presidential campaign is truly a carnival sideshow. I mean, it is so divorced from reality, and the coverage is even more divorced from reality. Okay, Peter, what's reality? Here's reality. In England at the moment, um, about one in every seven um, people is self-employed. Forbes magazine projects that in four years, um, about 50 percent of the working public is is going to be to, you know, to, they'll have a job, but they'll be to some degree self-employed on top of that. You may say, well, that sounds very abstract. This has huge implications for the way we live. Um we are living at a time when capitalism has just totally disrupted um, people's lives all over the world. And none of the issues that are really involved are being dealt with. I mean, I meant to bring down with me Hillary Clinton's campaign, the, 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 the paperback book they issued, which on the one hand, I have to salute and say, look, here's a whole paperback book full of mind-numbing detail about loads of issues. Um, And it's really thoughtful. It's very democratic. You can't say she doesn't have a plan. I haven't seen much about it. Maybe my head's been in the rock. But you go through that, and that, that campaign book, that manifesto, really doesn't address the larger reality we're on the cusp of moving into. This is all about jobs and employment and income. Um, And I don't – it's the world is – we're in the midst of a silent revolution that's changing everything. And you don't get a hint of it from the press or from the candidates. You do get like said economic dislocation, though. I mean, I'm thinking of that Matt Visor story where he went no, to you do. Pennsylvania, right, yep. and looked at that graduating but, high school class and the way but, their expectations. But that's old news. All right, it, looking backward as opposed to looking. Yeah, forward. no, no, and, and it's not that that everything stinks. I'm just saying that we are in the midst of a revolution in the way we in the in the way the whole world lives, makes its living, and um, and, and I'm divorcing foreign policy from this. Um, and it's nowhere. Hmm. I got to go back to Dan's contention for a second, because you're specifically talking about, not about a huge change in the way we live going unreported, but you have a very candidate-specific lens on on the press's shortcomings in this race. And I'm not, I think that I hadn't thought about that point at all, Peter, and actually the prospect of the future that you just raised right there is kind of a terrifying one. Dan, when it comes to the press, your contention that the press is piling on Clinton and, and uh, giving Trump a pass, 
if we talked about Trump's surrogates uh, spreading rumors about Hillary Clinton's health before she had her her spell. If a surrogate like Rudy Giuliani goes on whatever network he goes on and, and says she might have Parkinson's or she might have dementia, I haven't been keeping track of his utterances. But what's the press supposed to do? Because on the one hand, those statements may be totally groundless rumor mongering. On the other hand, here we have a surrogate for the Republican Party's nominee making this unsubstantiated claim, which is in and of itself newsworthy, even if you think it's an unsubstantiated claim. So what's the alternative? You cover it uh, as we have been, or what do you do? Do you just, do you ignore it? Do you cover it, but call it out and say, uh, Rudy Giuliani made the latest in a long line of unsubstantiated claims about Hillary Clinton's health today in a news article rather than a column? What's the way to go? You know, I, I think that you put it well when you say, what is the press supposed to do? Because I think that the genius of the Trump campaign in many ways has been uh, a a deep knowledge or just a deep gut sense sense of how to game the traditional uh, way that the press goes about its business. Um, You know, uh, Jay Rosen of New York University, who writes the uh, Press Think blog, has written and talked about this, basically saying that... Uh, Trump has broken the traditional press system, and we don't know what to replace that with. Peter Peter talks about disruption. This is another thing mm. that's being disrupted. Yeah, I mean, l- listen, the, the, pre- the media, we let Clinton uh, – I'm sorry, let Trump get away with murder from day one. Um, you know, it's too late now. And by the way, even if the media had held Trump accountable – he would still be the nominee today, I believe. Oh, I agree. Um, but um, the institution, you know, really fell down on the job, television in particular, because he was good ratings. And no one, this is my opinion, you, you know, I don't have any evidence that, you know, shows this, but liberal MSNBC would have Trump wall-to-wall Trump at night, showing him, and then, yes, there'd be the pointy-headed commentator saying, oh, my God, this is awful. Can you believe what he's saying? The the, the, the television magnified the Donald Trump factor, yeah. which, by the way, would have been considerable to begin with. It's also that search for balance, though, that you talked about, Dan, right? And and the I think it originated with Eric Baylor, the idea that many liberal members of the media desperately want to avoid being seen as liberal members of the media. And so they try to uh, distill their coverage to or they, they try to achieve a breakdown of, you know, half negative coverage for candidate X, half negative for candidate Y, half positive for candidate X, half positive for candidate Y. Is that something that you think Trump has taken Huge advantage of? Oh, I think he's taken absolutely huge advantage of that. Uh, Eric Alterman, by the way. Oh, thank you. And um, yes, I mean, members of the of the elite press are overwhelmingly liberal, and uh, they they hate being called out for that. So traditionally, and we've seen this going back twenty or thirty years, going back to Spiro Agnew and the nattering nabobs of negativism. Uh, they traditionally like to 
uh, beat up on liberal politicians with a with special glee in order to avoid those charges of bias. Well, th- th- that's y- you know when I reread your piece today, Dan, um, you know at leisure rather than it's like oh, got to read this to edit it. I, I was struck, and again, the comparison through, through, through the mind is with the United Kingdom, where there is. There are conservative newspapers. There are conservative magazines that are not wacko. And as a result, some of the best stuff I read about labor appears in conservative newspapers because they don't, you know, they don't seem to have to pretend they're anything else. I, I got to say, that's sometimes why the Wall Street Journal, you know, yeah. which is a generally conservative viewpoint on things, is often so good on the Democrats because they're, they're clinical about it. Yeah. Um, yeah. Of course, we've all got our special perspective, having all worked for whatever length of time at the, the Boston Phoenix and in the alt-weekly world. You know, I learned from you as a colleague, Dan, and from you as my editor there, Peter, uh, over the course of six plus years, that it's not a bad thing to have a point of view and that you can offer a intellectually honest description and analysis of a given phenomenon, in large part because you have a point of view that informs the take that you're providing. Kind of, I think that's, uh, in a way, I'm paraphrasing what you just said. And yet there are times that I'll hear, for example, I don't want to get us in trouble, we're an NPR affiliate, but I'll hear an NPR anchor interviewing a Trump surrogate, and I will be pulling my hair out at the incendiary statement that is allowed to stand or the follow-up question that goes unanswered. Uh, and you know, obviously, NPR has its own set of, of well, special and, and, concerns. Well, yeah, right. I understand what you're saying. I, I have to say that I'm impressed with the rigor with which NPR um, uh, news people apply. They, they've got their rules and they apply them. I think NPR is more consistent. I'm biased, but I think they're more consistent than the New York Times is. The, the new see the trouble with the Times in particular is they really set up they write headlines that would be good on magazine pieces, but then they they're written like a daily newspaper story. And you say, so what's huh. the difference? Well, the difference is a magazine piece is more expansive. You you get to dwell in the gray areas. I I I, I think to answer you, you know I felt inadequate when I was talking about Anthony Weiner in the New York Times. I think my problem with that piece was that that really should have been like a page and a half or a two-page piece where you could get into all, you know, the weirdness, the complexities, the paradoxes. It is very strange to have a digital flasher married to, you know, the first woman, serious, you know, woman contender for the presidency who's in turn married to another you know, ex-president. It's a lot of coincidence, and you need, I think, a lot of space to get into that. Yeah, you know, and I think that with the New York Times, we also have to remember that there's a special thing going on. We've had 25 years of dysfunctional coverage of the Clintons from the New York Times going right back to Whitewater, and very little of it has ever panned out. And, uh, you know, the New York Times broke the Hillary Clinton email story, which was a terrible mistake on her part. It revealed all kinds of bad judgment, but nevertheless uh, has been regularly mischaracterized as a crime. Right. But let me know. And Dan's right. Mischaracterized as a crime. Whitewater was mischaracterized as a probable crime. 
Benghazi was mischaracterized as, you know, worse than the crime. He has what it shows, in my mind, above Hillary Clinton. Benghazi aside, which is Benghazi really belongs in its own I'm holding up a blue jar of water. A mason jar. A mason jar of water. Belongs in its own container. What bothers me is Hillary Clinton doesn't learn. What do I mean by that? She didn't learn from Whitewater, where she was understandably miffed. You know, look, they lost money on Whitewater. (laughs) She was understandably miffed at what she viewed as the intrusion of their privacy. You know, too bad, Mrs. Clinton— you, you, you know, you're in the fast lane now. But she didn't learn from that experience. You know, she voted for the war in Iraq. Did she, she says she made the mistake. Then why did she promote the war in Libya? You, you know, um, now we, we, we come to um, the emails. Again, a mistake right from the start not as bad as everyone says. You know, the NPR had a terrific story about the lengths to which Colin Powell went. He was much shrewder in avoiding the system. He simply put his computer on an outside phone line or something very close to that. He didn't have his own server. But nevertheless, Mrs. Clinton, Hillary Clinton, just seems incapable of of stepping outside of herself and asking herself, how will the world perceive me? To me, that means she doesn't learn from her mistakes, and that really, really troubles me. Dan, i got to ask you in closing, do you think that our traditional divide in the press, not all-weekly, obviously not opinion-y podcasts like we're doing here, but in the mainstream media where you have opinion journalists who are allowed to comment and offer Uh, analyses that are infused with opinion. And then on the other hand, you have the straight news reporters who, in theory, uh, describe what they are seeing or hearing or what a given candidate might be doing without passing judgment. Does Donald Trump's candidacy and the way it's been covered show that that sort of standard issue division of labor needs to be rethought? I think it shows that that standard division of labor doesn't work when you have a candidate who is regularly uh, lying and making things up, and the press knows it. And to the extent that they feel that the traditional rules of balance don't allow them to say that, that clearly needs to be rethought. Let let me draw a distinction that will hopefully drive the Trump people and the Clinton people crazy. Donald Trump is a career liar. Hillary Clinton has regularly told lies. What's the difference? The difference is lying is the essence of Donald Trump. Hillary Clinton, unfortunately, tells too many lies. And she, and worse than that, she gets caught. <laughs> she always gets caught. She is the, uh, what the, what's the, uh, the, the Velcro candidate. All right. I lied about that last question being my last question. Here's the last one. But you're a very good liar. Thank you. Thank you very much. Um, an unusually good liar, as Bob Carey once said of Bill Clinton. <laughs> I'd like to, great reference. I'd like to hear from both of you if you think that it is, and I think, Peter, you might have indicated you thought the ship had sailed. Is it too late for one final about face by the press that would get the media as a whole behaving more along the lines Dan would like to see than we've seen so far? 
I think they're trying to do it in a lot of cases. Uh, I see CNN, which drives me crazy, nevertheless will regularly challenge Trump uh, and and the things that he says in ways that depart from the traditional notion of balance. That Brianna Kyler exchange with that uh, feverish Trump surrogate uh, pointing out that Trump was leading in the majority of polls. Uh, it was something he oh. seemed to deny, even though it was just factually yeah. untrue. May have been my favorite moment of the campaign. Well, Bri- Brian Stelter's done some great stuff. Jake Tapper's done some great stuff. Yep. But then you've got the overwhelming sense of hour after hour of Trump coverage where he's really not being sufficiently challenged. And we hear from, you know, Jeffrey Lord and Corey Lewandowski saying the most absurd things about Trump. Corey Lewandowski's still on, uh, at least as of fairly recently, on the Trump payroll. It's horrendous. Correct? And it's, also drawing a check from CNN it, and getting as, as Trump would Jeff say, Tucker. it's disgusting. I mean, it's it's he, he shouldn't. Be, yeah, that's crazy. Peter Kansas, last word to you. Um, I, I think we're too far along the road. Um, although I do think it's possible that one or two journalists, I, I don't know who they will be, you know, could emerge as being sensible voices. You know, it could be someone on television. It could be someone on radio. It it could be someone, you know, writing for, uh, you know, the the, the old dead tree newspapers. Could be a moderator in one of the debates, a la Candy Crowley. No, No? I think that's too situational. What, What I'm saying is I think we're too far along. I think the most we can hope for is for one or two writers or commentators, you know, to pull it all together I mean, David Brooks tries, um, but but he's he's he, he's paid to be a thumbsucker. It's too much. Yeah. I think we need someone engaged in the daily thing. Yet yeah, someone engaged in the daily thing from whom you're not expecting it, right? I mean, if yes. Charlie Pierce, another former Phoenician, wrote the best synopsis of Trump versus Clinton, it wouldn't hit home in the same way as something by a more mainstream figure might, because you expect Charlie to be a very vocal liberal voice, right? Well, that's right. And, you know, I mean, I have to say I'm I'm I've just about had my fill of hot Trump takes. And and yet this is when everybody is tuning in more than they ever have up to this point, which is a point I was trying to get at earlier, which is I think that just as the entire country is tuning in, the media have gotten kind of tired of all of the Trump Michigas, and so they've turned their attention to Clinton in a way that I think is overly intense and often unfair. Just a footnote to what Dan's saying. This is also the time when everyone starts like like you know boxes in a in a championship ring. The, the, People who vote Democratic and people who vote Republican, even if they call themselves independents, this is the time everyone begins retiring to their comfortable natural corners. So um, all it takes is one, two or three reasonable voices in the press and it, it, it might end up. But I don't hold I don't see any reason for hope. All right. On that downbeat note, no more lies. We're going to leave it there. Dan Kennedy, thank you for coming in. And that's going to do it for this edition of The Scrum. As always, we'd love to know what you think. Is the press's coverage one reason Donald Trump is surging right now? Email us at scrum at wgbh.org or find us on Twitter. I'm at Riley Adam. 
Peter is at Kadzis, and Dan is at DanKennedy underscore N-U. We'd also love it if you listen to us every week, so please subscribe to The Scrum on iTunes. You can rate us while you're at it, if you'd like, or find us on whatever podcatcher you happen to use. You can also find back episodes online at blogs.wgbh.org scrum. Our producer is Jason Tureski. Our engineer this week was Doug Sugartz. I'm Adam Riley, and The Scrum is a production of WGBH News. Scrum.